0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to focus on verses 29 to 39. But we'll start reading at verse 21 so that we can see the context. Now, looking at the broader context, Israel is still in Egypt at this point. They have been pleading, praying for God to deliver them. They've been there for 430 years at this point. God has raised up Moses and his brother Aaron as his spokesmen, as prophets. And he's poured out upon Egypt nine plagues that have left Egypt in utter ruin at this point. And yet still Pharaoh's heart is hard. Still he will not release them as he's been commanded. And so we read, starting in verse 21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians... for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is the night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved children of God, through Christ the resurrected King, at Grace we've been working our way through Exodus. And we've seen the significance of these plagues that God sent upon Egypt. And what we've seen is that those plagues were intended to be a living sermon, pointing not just to the power of God on behalf of Israel in those days, but showing us ultimately what He would do on a far greater scale. We saw that especially with regard to the judgment that God was foreshadowing. He was showing how one day he will reveal the rebellion of those who have served this world's false gods. That judgment will humble all those who have dared to do so, to serve those false gods, punishing them for refusing to serve the true God but it will not be a judgment that is universal. Those who serve God will be exempt from that judgment, just as Israel was exempt from the consequence of many of the plagues. God will set a distinction between His people and the people who rejected Him. Those who rebel will be judged, while those who serve Him, those who submit to Him, will be spared. However, God means to do more than spare his people. He intends to deliver us through a great victory. At the start of this chapter, God teaches his people to trust in Jesus as the lamb who will suffer on their behalf. That's the message of Passover. It was to teach them that God would send His Son as the Lamb, who by His suffering and death would cause them to be exempted, would cause them to be set apart and delivered in the midst of the judgment that would befall the rest of the world. Now here, in this text, the image changes. No longer are they pointed to Jesus through a Lamb, but now through a firstborn child that dies. And while the start of our text focuses on the death of the Son and the deliverance that comes through that, that is by no means all we see in this text, because the people aren't merely delivered. They are enriched, they are multiplied, they are led forth in the midst of great fullness and victory. And this, too, points forward to what God intends to do for His people. This, too, gives us an understanding of who we are as God's people. And that's essential because, brothers and sisters, when we look at ourselves, the church in this world, we don't see something impressive. We don't. We don't see something, usually... We don't see something powerful and mighty and overwhelming. Instead, we see a small minority. One of the things I love about about, uh, teaching at convention, it's one of the few times that our kids get to see this multitude of people who share their convictions, who share their love of the Lord, who share their worship, because most of the time they feel really truly alone. But by this text, God shows us we are not alone and we will not be alone. We will, in fact, be the triumphant ones, the victorious ones, the enriched ones who watch the judgment of those who dared reject the living God. The Lord delivers His children unto great victory by the death of the firstborn son. That's our theme here. The Lord delivers His children unto great victory by the death of the firstborn son. And he reveals that deliverance, first of all, as a deliverance from the reign of this world's ruler, which is what we see first. Now, to understand the effects of this deliverance, we need to understand first how God brought it about. Verse 29 says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Why did he do that? Well, there are at least two reasons. Immediately, this was the fulfillment of God's justice against old Egypt. When God first called Moses, he instructed Moses about the message that Pharaoh was to hear. Exodus 4, he says, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Moses was to command Pharaoh to acknowledge, first of all, that he is the true God. Secondly, to acknowledge that Israel was the people that he had chosen as his firstborn child. And thirdly, to let them go so that they might serve their heavenly father, so that they might worship him. But should Pharaoh refuse, Moses was to tell him, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, that would be justice. If you Continue to incarcerate, if you continue to enslave my firstborn, I will kill your firstborn. That's justice. However, despite a multitude of warnings, preliminary judgments, punishments, destructions, terrors, despite all these opportunities to repent and to acknowledge God as the true God, and to fulfill or to to obey His word, Pharaoh refused. And so God fulfilled the promise of judgment against his firstborn. He brought a final plague that was comprehensively just. The son of Pharaoh was struck dead. But not only the son of Pharaoh, all of the, all of the firstborn in Egypt. Pharaoh's servants, their firstborn. Pharaoh's lowliest citizens. Even the prisoner in the dungeon and among the few livestock that remained, their firstborn. You see, Israel was enslaved not just by Pharaoh alone, but by all of Egypt. They conspired together to oppress and afflict the people of God, and therefore, together, they would bear the fullness of the judgment that God would send upon them. The effects were catastrophic. How many children were destroyed for their nation's sins? How many adults were struck down along with their firstborn because they themselves were the firstborn? How many mothers filled that night with weeping and wailing inconsolable at the loss they had endured? And yet it wasn't merely a loss of life that was poured out upon this nation. You see, in those ancient cultures, the firstborn son in particular was regarded as exceptionally special. They generally received a special blessing and special privileges from their parents. They were given a double portion of the inheritance. They were regarded as the leaders of their siblings, and why? You see, the firstborn son was regarded as the assurance that that family would have a future. He was the one who would carry the name of the family into the future. He was the one who would ensure that the family would have a part in the nation in the future. In a very real sense, he was... An assurance that the nation itself would have a future. So by destroying their firstborn, God was telling Egypt, because of your hard-hearted rebellion, because of your insistence on rejecting me and rebelling against me, I am threatening, I am endangering, I am calling into question the viability of the future of your entire nation. Your future is cut off. Your name is cut off. Your reputation, your honor are done because you rejected the true and living king. Israel, however, was spared. Were they spared because their uh, submission to God was perfect? Because their righteousness was. No. If you recall your own readings from Exodus. When, Moses, or when, when Pharaoh began pushing back against Moses, they begged Moses to stop, to just leave well enough alone, to not poke the bear. Their obedience was, was not flawless, but they were spared because of another firstborn son who would perish for them. That other son who also was the lamb, he was the greater firstborn son. The one called in Colossians 1 verse 15 the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That son would suffer and die instead of Israel. And then he would arise from the grave, the firstborn from the dead. In that son's death and in his triumph over the grave, that greater son would deliver fully Israel and all who would ever be a part of Israel. He would deliver us first from the reign of this world's rulers. You see, Pharaoh wasn't merely a wicked king. He was that. But that wasn't the only significance of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was representative of what Ephesians 6 verse 12 describes as the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the powers that fight against all who would serve God. These are the powers that enslave all of the descendants of Adam. These are the enemy led by Satan himself, represented by Pharaoh's throne. In the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh was defeated, wasn't he? What did he do? The last time he had seen Moses, he said... The next time you see my face, you will die. But suddenly he changes his tune. In the middle of the night, he calls, Fa- or calls Moses, calls Aaron, says, Go, leave, take your people, do what you've said, take all your livestock, all your possessions, I don't care, just do it. Go, exactly as you have asked. He is submitting, unconditional surrender. He acknowledges the sovereignty of Israel's God and that's significant because Pharaoh was regarded as the living manifestation of one of Egypt's chief gods. So this was a bowing of their God before the true God, Yahweh. And that's significant. That is significant because it foreshadows what is coming. Again, Pharaoh represents those rulers, those authorities, those cosmic powers. The death of the firstborn in Egypt points to the death of the greater firstborn son, the firstborn over all the creation, the one whose death would defeat, would defeat not just Pharaoh, but all of the rulers and authorities of this world. Of that greater firstborn son we heard in our assurance of pardon, Hebrews 2 Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And 1,500 years later it would come to pass. When Jesus died on the cross, he died. Yes, to atone for our sins and to free us from our guilt, but also to defeat the ruler of this dark world and all who serve him. And when he arose from the grave, his victory was complete, and we, God's children, were freed. Pharaoh's command, sending forth the children of Israel, that's immense. Because it shows not merely God's authority over this man who ruled this ancient nation, it shows God's authority over Satan. And the dark forces of this world, let us never forget that. The rulers of this world have been defeated. They might rattle their sabers. They might utter their threats. They might even harm your body, but they cannot harm your soul. They might command you not to worship. They might command you to silence your confession. But they have no authority when they contradict the living God. And one day soon they will bow the knee before Him because they have already been defeated. And there's even more going on here. Because when God delivered His children, He didn't merely remove their chains. He also delivered to them the riches of this world's kingdoms, which is the second thing we see here. Look at verse 33 in your text. It's worth noting that the verb rendered were urgent is one of the verbs used to describe Pharaoh's heart during the earlier plagues. Rendered there to be strong or to harden. With Pharaoh, with Pharaoh, the Egyptians had been strong-willed about keeping Israel enslaved. He wasn't acting alone. He was acting in concert with his whole nation. But now, having seen God's wrath up close and personal, now they've become strong-willed about releasing God's people. They were terrified, and rightly so. With each plague, Egypt had become more of a a wasteland. With each plague, the people had become more impoverished, more harmed, more terrified. It was no leap of logic for them to conclude that if they did not finally acknowledge Yahweh as the living God, if they did not finally fulfill His will and dismiss the people of Israel, they would all die. So they began urging the children of God to depart quickly. But God had commanded his people, back in chapter 11, verse 2, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and for gold jewelry. Now that can't have been easy. I mean, put yourself in Israel's shoes. We're not sure from the text whether they were to do this before or after the 10th plague. But even if it was before, their land had been utterly ruined. Every one of their crops had been shredded, destroyed, eaten, annihilated. Almost all of their livestock were dead. Many of them had died or been grievously wounded. Their land was a wasteland. They had no idea what they were going to eat in the coming season. And now, here come these slaves whose God was responsible for all of it, saying, can we have your gold and your silver and perhaps your finest clothes? Was not all of this enough? Now you want also our riches. Now you want to take the stuff that we were going to use to pay for our food. Really? Surely they had to expect the people to push back. But God commanded it. And so Israel did it. They went. They asked. And verse 36, amazingly, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Only the true God could so transform the hearts of the Egyptians that they would recognize this is just, this is right, Here's all our riches. And so we read, they plundered the Egyptians. Again, this is not merely an interesting bit of historical trivia. In having his people plunder the Egyptians, God was showing what was to come. When Adam was created, he was given, kids, you know this. When Adam was created, he was given all the creation for what purpose? To serve God. To glorify him. To worship him. But when Adam fell, when Adam sinned, Satan laid claim to all of it. An unrighteous claim, but right or wrong, Satan led mankind and has led mankind to use the riches of this world for evil. They use what God intended for glorifying him to glorify themselves. They take what God made and use it to portray false gods. They take what was given by the living God, the one true God, and they use it to serve Satan who rebelled against God. This world and its kingdoms have taken captive the creation that God formed for His glory. But here God is showing that misuse of the creation soon will end. The world and its riches will be restored to the people of God, and they will use it how? Well, how did Egypt or Israel use these riches plundered from Egypt, very soon they would be out in the wilderness and God would command them to donate their gold, to donate their silver, to donate their fine linen so that they could build a tabernacle that would display the glories of heaven, that would allow the people to worship God who dwelt in their midst They were taking the riches of these unrighteous and ungodly people and using them once more to serve and to glorify God. And what we see there is a foreshadowing of what soon is to come. We were called to worship with Isaiah 60, which reminds us that very soon the nations will come to your light, the kings of the earth to the brightness of your rising. And a little further beyond that, we're told that One day soon you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news and the praises of the Lord. In other words, all of the riches, all of the glory, all of the might of this world will come to you and you will use it to glorify God as it was intended. That's coming. We don't yet see it, but we know that it's coming. Now my friends this is not the main point of this verse but it's worth noting or of this text but it's worth noting Those riches will come so that you can use them to glorify God when when God sent Israel out into the wilderness and he commanded them to build that tabernacle he wasn't commanding them to pick up a whole bunch of new skills they had never used Remember they were craftsmen they were slaves but they were craftsmen in Egypt They were used to building, sewing, constructing, molding, shaping, forming. All those skills that they picked up during their time of slavery, they were going to use now out in the wilderness to build this glorious tabernacle that would honor God. Today, you live in the midst of a world filled with unrighteousness, filled with sinners and rebellion, and you use these talents that God's given you, these skills... You refine them. You build them. To what end? Sometimes we wonder, right? You work on that car and you know that eventually that car is going to break again. You work on that house and you know that pretty soon that house is going to need to be fixed again. To what end are we using all of these gifts, all of these skills? Well, you know what? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 says that your labor in the Lord is not in vain the skills that you develop here, the talents that you grow and refine in this life, God is going to use in eternity when he brings all of the riches of this creation and sets them in your lap and you're going to use all of those skills, all of those abilities, all of those gifts in ways that glorify God with the creation that has been returned to you. Your labor as Christians in this life, it's not in vain. And it's not merely a wasting of time, but it will follow you into eternity because God will deliver to you the riches of this world's kingdom. And there's one more thing that we need to see from this text. Verses 37 through 39 describe the actual going forth of Israel out of Egypt. And look at what it shows us. Verse 37 says, this group that entered Egypt Seventy people, an extended family. They departed from the land, 600,000 men strong. 600,000 men, plus their wives, plus their children. An immense multitude, nor were they alone. Because verse 38 tells us, A mixed multitude also went up with them. These were the Egyptians who not only finally acknowledged that Yahweh is the true God, but who began to trust Him, who said, We need to serve this God, we need to be part of His people. These were the other slaves who weren't of Israel, who became part of Israel. These were the people who joined the Israelites. How many were there? We're not told. But a very conservative estimate would be 1.5 million, and probably as much as double that. And along with them, much livestock with with which they would serve the Lord, from which they would bring sacrifices of worship to serve the creator of the world. Brothers and sisters, do not miss the glorious message of those final, final texts. In the death of his firstborn son, God delivered his people to serve the creator of this world. That's why Israel departed from Egypt. That was what Moses said at the first, and that's what Moses said at the end. We're we're departing so that we can go and worship the Lord. We're departing so that we can go and serve God as he commands us. So you understand that this Exodus story, it's not merely a screed against slavery or oppression, or dictatorial world governments. No. It's a demonstration that God is going to bring His people out from all of the oppression we know in this world so that we can serve Him fully and wholeheartedly as the Creator, as the Redeemer, as the King. That means that Jesus didn't die merely to free you from eternal discomfort. To be sure, he died on the cross to pay our debt so that we wouldn't have to. But that wasn't all. Jesus died and rose again so that you could be restored to God so that you could be cleansed from your sin, so that you could be made holy and perfect and pure, so that you could fulfill the calling for which you were made, which is the calling to serve God, to glorify God, to worship God in all of life for all of eternity. Jesus died and rose again so that you could serve with every fiber of your being the Lord our God. He delivered us already. You have already been delivered from sin. You have already been delivered from the chains that once held you captive. Such that you could not not sin. Now you can not sin. And more each day you're learning to live a life of holiness rather than defilement. A life of righteousness rather than rebellion. But he's given you a future too. Very soon, we don't know when, but very soon, Jesus is going to return and he's going to cleanse this whole world of everything stained by sin. And he's going to entrust it to you who will have been perfected from every sin, from every sinful tendency. And you will serve God with a fullness and a wholeness and a glory and a joy that you can't even begin to fathom right now. The victory's already been won. We await only the time ordained by the Lord. And that return will be sudden. When they left the land of Egypt, they didn't have time for their dough to rise. They didn't have time to bake provisions. All of a sudden, they were told, up, arise, leave. And they left. And so shall that day be. We'll be going about our business. We'll be working about the house. All of a sudden the trumpet will sound, Christ will return, the dead will arise, the judgment will occur. It will happen so quickly our our heads will spin. And what that means is that we need to be ready now. There's not going to be a big announcement, there's not going to be a warning, you have two weeks left until, no. Suddenly the moment will come, the day will dawn. And so you need to be ready to go today. And that means trusting Christ. That means trusting Christ for your salvation. That means serving Christ with all of the opportunities He gives. That means using all of your talents to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That means studying this Word so that you can understand how to live now and unto eternity. That means preparing for the exodus even this day. And having done so, having begun your preparations, brothers and sisters, rejoice. For Jesus Christ, the firstborn Son, has died and risen for you. In Him, your deliverance is assured, and there is nothing greater for us than to sing His praises and eagerly to await His return. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You have provided for us a victory that is infinitely greater than anything this world has known. May you be glorified through us as we learn to trust in you, as we prepare our hearts, our minds, our very lives to serve you in eternity. And Lord, help us to live in the light of the victory that Christ has obtained, eagerly awaiting that exodus that is coming for us when the trump sounds and Christ descends.